Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. finishing bragging about himself, so to speak. He has not wanted to do that, but felt it necessary to put the opponents in their place. Now he turns the tactic here, and now he's going to open up and share with them some important things. And I want to share with you this morning three ways that Paul expresses his concern and opens up his heart. Three ways. The first one we're going to find in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, we're going to see in verses 11 through 13, that he tells the Corinthians that they are foolish for playing the boasting game. He's going to say, listen, you are foolish for playing this game. In other words, he's showing concern by being honest. Don't you wish sometimes that people would just be a little bit more honest? Maybe not. But you know, honesty is one of the things that God has called us to be there. And if you truly love someone, if you truly care for someone, then honesty is necessary for that relationship. So Paul is done playing games. It's time now for some honesty. He says in verse 11, I have been a fool. You forced me to do it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what way were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me, he writes, for this wrong. Paul has had to resort to defend themselves since they did not come to his defense. When these super apostles, he uses that term in, in an ironic, sarcastic way, when they started to accuse and to tear down Paul, those people of the Corinthian church should have stand up and said, No! This is not Paul that you're speaking of. They should have shouted them down. They should have cut down their def- or cut down all the offensive that was going against Paul. However, they didn't. In the last few passages we've read, Paul had to defend himself by proclaiming, hey, listen, I'm greater or better than these people. These people that are accusing me, that are challenging me. We saw that he was greater in knowledge, in sacrificial love, in revealing the truth, in weakness, in heritage, in serving, in suffering, in humility, and greater even in visions and revelations that we saw last week. Just nine ways that Paul says, listen, I am greater than them. And you should have understood this and recognized this. But they ignored all that Paul had done for them, including their own spiritual birth, as Paul has brought them to the gospel, introduced them to the gospel of Christ, introduced them to Jesus, and planted that very church Taking your Bible, turn to Acts, if you would, chapter 14. And we'll just look at two passages very quickly. You'll see that signs and wonders were very common in the early New Testament church as the Holy Spirit was confirming the witnesses of the apostle and planting his word. 
In Acts chapter 14, look at verse 1, speaking of Paul and Barnabas. It says, Now at Iconium they entered into the Jewish synagogues and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Many people came to know the Lord because of their ministry. He says in verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, so that they remained there for a long time, Paul and Barnabas did, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of God's grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. What is he saying? God, the Holy Spirit, did many things in their midst. If you look at chapter 15, one page over, probably verse 12, as Paul and Barnabas now goes to the Jerusalem council, they stand before the great disciples who were the very eyewitnesses of Christ. And Paul and Barnabas come before them, they say, share with us, you've been preaching Jesus. Tell us, are you truly one of Christ? You may recall that Paul at one time was a persecutor of the church. He was killing people. He was torturing people because they were Christians. He said, why should we believe you? It says in verse 12 of chapter 15 that in Paul and Barnabas spoke that all the assembly fell silent and listened to them as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And what was the result? The disciples, James, John, and Peter, Matthew, the rest, they praised God for what God was doing. In the same way, there ought to be great signs and wonders as our lives submit to the life of Christ. The Corinthians experienced this same measure of the Holy Spirit in their church. Luke wrote concerning the beginning of the Corinthian church, said in verse eight or chapter eighteen of Acts, said, "And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed." And they were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and 16, uh, six months. For 18 months, Paul taught the word of God among them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in his first letter, Paul has said, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? All the qualifications for an apostle. He says, Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? In other words, can't you see that you are the fruit of my labors? If to others I am not an apostle, if others will not accept me, at least you should accept me. I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship to the Lord. They should have stood up and said, yes, Paul is of the Lord. His ministry has been fruitful. His personal work has been above board. But yet they were silent for their spiritual father. How sad this must have been to Paul. I think many times when we read Scripture, we read it sometimes not putting ourselves in the place of the one who's writing. So take a moment, think about Paul, think about you. If your children were talking about you, if your children were, were relating all these things, listening to someone else, maybe a teacher at school or someone else saying, oh, your parents are awful. 
Your dad never took care of you. Your dad never did anything for you. They never supported you. They never gave you anything. And here you are defending the one who speaks against your parents. That was what Paul was going through. That was what Paul was experiencing. I don't know if you can catch the emotion here and what was really going on, but that's Paul's heart. It's broken. And he says, why are you doing this? Paul rebukes them for their attitude and their short memory of what have you done for me lately? Come on, Paul. Yeah, maybe you did that several years ago, but what now? He had written them again in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 that he gave thanks to God always for them, the Corinthian church, because the grace of God that was given to them in Christ Jesus, for in every way he speaks of the Corinthians, you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, he writes, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Jesus Christ. They're saying, why? We're less favored among the church. But Paul's saying, wait a second, you, you were above board, you were above, you received so much from God. Why have you forgotten this so quickly? You were not less favored among the churches, but God gave you more and so much more than so many others. He ended that passage by reminding them that he was not a financial burden on them, but he worked with his own hands to provide his own keep. Sarcastically, he replies, forgive me this wrong. So I didn't take money from you? This is a problem? And it is. For some reason, the Corinthians struggled with this concept that Paul would not accept money from them. His opponents had twisted the minds of the Corinthians so much against Paul that he feels destitute and separated and abandoned by his own spiritual children. I don't even know if I can imagine that as a father, how that would tear my heart. I've never experienced that as a father, but I have experienced that as a pastor. I've experienced this very thing where people have risen up and spoken against and told lies to, 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 to cause division. And let me tell you, it is an awful, awful thing. Many of you have experienced this with me. It is not a fun thing. It is a thing that will just suck the life and energy out of you. But Paul says, my heart, I have a concern for you. Who would have, who would have, who would have um, uh, accused Paul of, of just, if he just said, you know what, I'm just going to turn my back. That's it. I'm washing my hand of him. We would have said, you know what, good riddance. And Paul could have done that. He could have said, you know what, let him have it. You want those guys, take them. Yet Paul's heart and concern would not do so. And you know what that feels like. Let me tell you, your marriage is worth fighting for. Your relationship with your children is worth fighting for. Your relationship as a church is worth fighting for. We don't give up, even when it gets difficult, even when it gets tough, even when we feel like the person that we love and care for the most has now become our most, our most hated enemy. We love and we concern for them. Some of you have experienced that in a very difficult way. But Paul expresses his concern by being honest with them and says the way that you're acting is foolish. You forget 
what God has done for you through me. The second way that Paul expresses his concern is by informing them that he plans to personally return to face his accusers head on. He's had enough of it. He's not going to play this game any longer. He realizes that this needs a personal confrontation. Look at verse 14. He says, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. And listen, we're going to see his heart. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. We understand that. That's a simple, common, uh, uh, common sense notion. Verse 15, look at here, here's his heart. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty. You say and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Paul has given them some final words before he returns. This is his third visit. The first one we read about in Acts chapter 18, that's when he planted the church. In 2 Corinthians 2.1, we saw that he had a painful visit. You might remember that's one of the focuses of this letter. Paul had gone and then there he recognized the opponents and that's when they did the accusations. They confronted him and he said it was very painful. It caused him a great hurt and he left very quickly. I think he was kind of side or uh, sidewhacked on that one. He didn't see it coming. And most of the letter, as we saw, was in response to that event. And he wrote a painful, painful letter and said, how you treated me was wrong. It was sin. And now his third visit was now to gauge their obedience as he says, you need to make this right. He plans to personally return and face his accusers head on. In other words, he says, I might have left very quickly. It might have seemed like I was leaving with my tail between my legs. But let me tell you, I am coming and I will face it head on. He has reminded them several times over this letter that he's their spiritual father. And as a father, he seeks their well-being, not his own. He's more interested in their moral reformation than their memory. And you and I understand, uh, than their money, excuse me. You and I understand this for those of us who have children. Here, who here is not a father and a, and a mother who has not sacrificed for their children? That's what we're called to do. We give to them, not expecting something in return, at least we should not. You know, I'm in that funny, uh, the funny thing where, where my children are now, you know, all adults. You know, my, my baby is going to be 20. And so for me, it's odd. Now, all, I praise God, all my children are working. We're expecting our grandchild in, in, in about another month and a half or so, and I'm excited about that. But I remember how, even as a parent, when we go out to eat, I remember the first few times when, when uh, they had their money and we said, now you're going to buy your own. That was difficult for me as a parent. To this day, and my kids will testify, it's still difficult for me to let them buy their own meal. Any other parents have that struggle, or is I the, the only one? There might be a few of you. Okay. Not only that, what's even harder is when they say, Dad, let me buy. 
that goes against every grain. And I'll have to tell you, it is hard for me to say, okay, okay. But you know what? You've got to let them do it. And I share that just to say, why is that? Because we as our parents want to take care of our children, do we not? And that never goes away, does it? And let me tell you, it shouldn't. Our desire should not be, and our plan should not be, well, I'm going to spend all my money on myself, and then when I get older, I'm going to then let my children take care of me. That's not how it's done. Well, we store up our money, and what we do? What do we do with the excess? We give it to our children. Except for those, you, you ever see those Winnebago's down the road that says, I'm in retirement and spending my kids' inheritance? Those are always funny. But there's something that's innate and natural for us to want to give to our children. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, as your spiritual father, I'm not there to get rich off you. Look at verse 15. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. As parents, we understand that. Paul is saying, as a spiritual father, that's how I am. Let me tell you, as a pastor, this right here is a qualifier for a true leader. For any pastor who is trying to get something out of ministry, he does not qualify. For a true minister of God should not only spend, but be willing to be spent for the children that God has put under, for the sheep that God has says, here's your, here's your flock. However, instead of being grateful, the Corinthians were offended that Paul did not take any money from them. I don't understand that, but that's how they were. His purpose in not accepting their money while pastoring was very simple. He wanted to keep his conscience and his reputation clear of any accusation of wrong motivation. And we as pastors need to be careful of that. All of the leaders have to be very, very careful of that because that's a very thin line. Earlier, Paul had written that he and his companions were not like so many peddlers of the Word of God. He did not want to seem as one who sells the Word of God for financial gain. But he willingly gave it all. Why? Because he was commissioned by God. In the sight of God, he says, we speak Christ. He's not like his opponents who did take money from the Corinthians and who were exploiting them. And unfortunately, friends, we've spoken about this over the last few weeks, is there are many ministries and many pastors out there who exploit their people for financial gain. And I pray that you would pray for me that my heart would be pure and that my heart would be, uh, my conscience would be clean in that very regard. Because that's just a simple human nature, always to seek more and to take care of ourselves. But it should not be so among God's ministers. Even though it would not be wrong for Paul to accept money, it would not have been wrong for Paul to accept money. He spoke about that in 1 Corinthians. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians real quickly, chapter 9. Paul gave a little bit of that letter. He says it's not wrong for the apostles and for ministers to take money. You don't muzzle the ox while he's treading grain, but you feed him. In other words, it's good to pay people who spend their lives working. 
And as an apostle, he had the right to expect money from them. But look in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. He said that he had not made use of any of those rights of accepting money, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, he says, I'm compelled to preach the gospel of Christ. It's not for money. I do this because it's it's compelling. It's something that I have to do. It would burn a hole inside of me if not He goes on to write, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul is saying, listen, do you forget so easily what I've written? Don't you see? I was with you for 18 months. You saw my testimony. You saw how I lived. Now do you stand here and accuse me of doing wrong? He ministers above board, as he says his companions do. And that his sending of Titus in chapter 8 to collect the gift for the church of Jerusalem was not a ruse to take money. Remember in chapter 8 we saw in 2 Corinthians that Paul says, I'm sending Titus to collect money for the church of Jerusalem. You don't have to do this, but it was your desire to do so. So I'm sending Titus to collect it. Paul says, I want none of it. I want to be above board. I'll send Titus and a couple of other men that the church has recommended and set up. But his opponents had said, listen, this Paul not taking money and sending some, this is a ruse. He's being crafty. He's trying to trick you. He's going to take or either skim a little bit out of that money. That was the accusation. Paul said, what are you thinking? Look at my testimony. Look at my character. I have never done such such things. His questions here were rhetorical. Did Titus take advantage of you? No, you've already told me how good he was and how proper he was. Did we not act in the same spirit as Titus? Of course we did. Did we take the same steps? Of course. Paul says, I need to return because I need to face this head on. The same way we need to do that. That shows our love and concern. Many people think that we shouldn't confront sin. We should just let people do what they want. But I'm here to tell you that the least loving thing is to allow people to continue in their sin. We understand this. We know this. How can we say that we love a world if we continue to allow them to go under the judgment of God? That's not love. Love is confrontational. It's speaking the truth in love. And Paul says you need to know my coming It's because not of that I want to get back and I want to protect myself or build myself up, but it's for you. And he shares this in the next few verses as Paul now, third reason he comes is to call them to repentance. The third way is not just to blast them with the truth, not to just put them in their place, but he has a purpose, and that's to call them repentance. Look at verse 19. 
He writes to them and says, Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may, not, I may find you not as I wish, and that you, may not fi- or that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. In verse 21, he continues, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they have practiced. This letter here of 2 Corinthians was in anticipation of his visit. He wanted them to prepare for his coming. In this letter, he had warned and encouraged them about the purpose of suffering and the comfort of God. He had warned them about the danger of association with idols. He had encouraged them to continue the contribution to the church of uh, Jerusalem. He had to follow through with their practice. And he had warned them not to be fooled by his boast of his opponents. He says, I don't want to find you in this way. And he's desirous of them to read this letter and repent. The first four sins listed in verse 20, quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility, shows Paul's fear that they're not living in the Spirit-filled life found in Galatians. Take your Bibles, if you would. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. As Paul is listening to these reports from the Corinthian church, I'm sure the anxiety and the worry that we saw earlier that he had for the church was rising up. Just as you, sitting back, may hear something bad about your children and you begin to worry, you begin to, to feel anxiety. What is going on? What is happening to their life? Galatians 5.19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, it's very clear to see those who are living the Spirit-filled life and those who are not. He says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warned you as I have warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, Corinthians, what I'm hearing about you says that you're not in the kingdom of God. He said, let it not be named among the saints. Let not these activities, let not these character traits be identified with you. Yet this church is struggling with these very things. Paul goes on to list four other sins, including slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder in verse 20. Those are probably more specific to them. As we saw both in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the problems with sexual sins and impurity and sensuality, the gossip and the slander that they had, and they were allowing to just continue in their church against him. Paul is not so much defending himself before them as he's calling out to God as his defense. 
He wants to build them up as children of God and not just build himself. That's the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet. Between one who has the calling of God and one who has the calling of men. They seek not to build up their own ministries and their own kingdoms, but they seek to build up the people of God and advance the kingdom of God. Paul's desire for them in writing this letter is that they may humble themselves in repentance and confess their sins before a mighty God who judges righteously. You and I need to recognize that as one day we will stand before a mighty God and he judged righteously. His scales will not be tipped in the wrong way. He is calling for their repentance. He's concerned that if they do not respond to his call of repentance, that he himself will be humbled as he realizes that his voice has no longer any influence among those people. Meaning that if they will not listen to his call, it shows how much respect that they have for his discipline and for his ministry. You see, Paul rightly fears God and he mourns for their sin. And just as Paul mourned for the sin of his people, we too ought to mourn for the sins of our of each other. Instead of lifting up and building up and seeing what they're doing, we too ought to mourn for sin. This letter has shown the great love and concern Paul has for his spiritual children. In this letter, we get a snapshot of his heart. And I'm ending here. So if I can just have your attention for just a few moments. In this letter, we get a snapshot of Paul's heart. And let me share with you, this is important. Listen with me. This is the type of leaders we need in our churches today. We need men who have a heart for people. Jeff had asked this past week, Thursday night, for our, in our men's um, small group, great question, why do you come to small groups? Why? Because I'm looking for men who have a heart for others. Who are deaf to the world and say, I will stand for what's right and I will lead others. I will have a concern for others. It's the type of men that we're looking for. In the same way, that's the type of women we're looking for. Just as you're concerned to have a heart for your own children, that's the heart and love we ought to have for each other. Why? Because we are a church that's called to do God's bidding. We need men and women who will stick it out, who will seek to build up the kingdom of God and not their own kingdom. But in the same way, those in the church need to be responsive to their leaders to their heart, and to the obedience of the Lord. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13, and with this I'll close. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the writer of the book of Hebrews writes to the churches throughout all ages, to that early New Testament church 2,000 years ago, 
to us today, 2013, when he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And that's what's going on here. They are not responding to Paul in the way they should. But yet, he also says, pray for us, as we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Let me end this two ways. What does this book 2,000 years ago, what does it have for us? Is that we too need to have the heart of Paul for each other. And we need to respond to that call. So I'll ask two things. Would you obey the leaders of God? And would you pray for us as leaders that we would submit to God and that we'll have that heart as God has called us to? Father, I thank you for Paul. And I thank you for the church of Corinthians. This is a church that was filled with many spiritual blessings. But yet, Lord, they were troubled. There was a struggle there. That's an encouragement in one way in the fact that we're not a perfect church. We too will have struggles. Yes, it's also a warning, Lord, that we need to respond to the call to repentance. May we do so. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm going to ask, with just your head bowed and your eyes closed for a moment, as and, and just everyone, just for a moment, just take a moment of silence. What is God calling you to this morning? Maybe He's calling you to submit and obey your leaders, and it will God's call you to repentance. Or maybe as a leader, He's calling you to have a heart to mourn for those people. Would you take a moment and just... Focus on what God's Word said for this morning. You're a good God. Let this message not be lost. Stir us, Father, to action. May you be glorified in our church. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.